I'll be reading from Colossians chapter 2, Colossians 2, 1 to 15. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority." And in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when we were dead, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. I'll pray. God, I thank you for this tremendous passage of Scripture, Lord, that just again brings us back to Jesus, all that he is, his, his supremacy and his sufficiency for this life. I pray, God, that our hearts would just be brought to him and that we would give him that proper place and that we would each have our master ambition to walk with him as we have received him. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, it is great to be home again and back with you all We've been traveling quite a bit. Patsy and I were in Spain, then we came home briefly, and then we went to Japan. Um, we were in Spain for meetings with torchbearers, so it was all meetings pretty much the whole time we were there, and then in Japan for teaching. Never been to either place. I would recommend both countries, wonderful places, um, but it's very good to be back. No place like home. And if you ever want to travel through an airport and be treated like royalty, wear a boot. Uh, <laughs> It is a great way to get through airports, I'm telling you what. Of course, you might have to lie about being injured, but um, in my case, I didn't have to. Yeah, you just call ahead, tell them you're on crutches with a boot, and man, everything changes. There is a side to the airports that I never knew existed. (laughs) You go through lines that only important people go through, flight crews go through, they, they cut in front of lines, they take you to parts of airports that I never saw before, and all because you're on crutches with a boot. So it's the way to fly. <laughs> anyway, so I'm actually um, going to be gone a couple more times this summer. 
And I'm sorry to be gone so much. It's just been the way things have, have gone. There's never been another summer um, like this one. Um, I'm going to be preaching next Sunday out in Florida. And then I'll be back for a Sunday. Then I'll be gone for two more Sundays to Canada where I'll be doing a wedding and, and teaching at our school in British Columbia. And then I'm here. Um, so anyway, we're in Colossians, if you haven't forgotten. Um, and um, it's a wonderful book Paul is writing, as you recall, to a group of people that he's never visited this church before. Only one of two epistles that he wrote to people he's never been to their church, Romans and Colossians. And of all the Paul's letters, I feel like these are two of the most important, and probably just for that reason, because he's never been there. And so Paul's talking about things and, and, and making sure people understanding things because he doesn't take for granted that they've heard what he knows they need to hear. And so with Romans, you have the, 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 the biggest part of Romans that's so important is three entire chapters on sanctification, what it means to walk in Christ, with Christ. No other book has that much space dedicated to that. And now here with Colossians... He is talking about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the fullness of Christ, because this is a group of people that have been very influenced by the culture and the philosophy of the culture around them. And he's concerned that they will be led astray from the fullness that is in Jesus Christ to thinking that even though they are Christians, there's something they need to have besides Jesus. And so this is a book that just says it's all Jesus. Chapter 1 is Jesus, chapter 2 is Jesus, chapter 3, chapter 4, it's all about Jesus. So if you ever write a book, like I've said I would write a book, it'd be a very short book because it's introduction, it's all about Jesus. Chapter 1, it's Jesus. Conclusion, I told you it was all about Jesus. Okay, that's how Paul is writing this book. The supremacy of Jesus Christ, and if Christ is the exalted one that he is, that he is fully God, then there's nothing that he can't do because he's God. And if God lives in you, and he does, if you've placed your faith in Christ, then you have everything that you will ever need the moment that you receive Christ. If you need something other than Jesus, then Jesus is something less than God. That's what it comes down to. And so it's a very simple message here. Now, the last thing he said in chapter 1, verse 28, we proclaim him admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. So we've got one message, one goal, one ambition. Lead Christians to Jesus. Okay? This is all the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit leads unbelievers to Christians. The Holy Spirit leads Christians to Jesus. Okay? Christians need to have Christ proclaimed to them. You're never going to graduate beyond, beyond this. This is what you tell preschoolers, and this is what you tell retired people. You need Jesus. Okay? It's nothing more than Jesus. So no matter what stage you're at in your life, no matter how little education you have or how much education you have, no matter how immature or mature you are as a Christian, the message is the same. And in fact, you can't mature as a Christian unless you stay centered on Jesus Christ. Because he says, we proclaim him. Why? So that we may present every man complete or mature in Christ. If you're proclaiming something other than Jesus, you're not going to be complete in Christ. You're not going to mature. It is not Jesus plus something else. If all you know in life is Jesus, you will grow up in your faith. 
You will be a mature Christian in your faith if you do one thing, and that is focus on Christ. Now, I'm not very, you know, I do not by any stretch consider myself a smart intellectual person. I'm a very simple person. And I can remember in Bible college that, you know, there was, a, there was there's always every year, every school, no, it wasn't unique to my school, there's always a group of students that fancy themselves intellectuals. And they love to argue theology. And in particular, at my school, it was Calvinism. Now, because I'm a simple person, I'm just going, I'm not smart enough to figure all this out. I mean, people, if you're arguing this today, it's obviously because it hasn't been figured out. And I don't think a bunch of 20-year-old Bible college students are going to figure out how God can be sovereign and man can have free will. Figure that out. But I don't think the answer is to say God's not sovereign or a man doesn't have free will. All I know is the Bible tells me my God is absolutely sovereign and I need to make a choice. Okay? Now, leave it alone was my philosophy. Okay? Leave it alone because it's not taking me to Jesus. Well, that was the first thing I had to just set aside when I was in Bible college. The second thing happened because I had to choose a minor. In Bible college, the major was chosen for you, Bible. Everybody majored in Bible. But I had to choose a minor. And I didn't know what my minor was going to be, but I transferred in with a lot of credit from having gone to His Hill and a junior college down in Corpus Christi. So I had over a year's credit, but I figured out in order to, to use all that credit, there was one minor that would allow me to use more transfer credit than any other. So that was the one I signed up for, right? Because I don't want to be in college a day longer than I have to be. And so that minor was called pre-seminary. I had no desire to go to seminary. I just wanted to get out of Bible college as quickly as possible. Okay, so I signed up for pre-seminary. Little did I know that pre-seminary was loaded with philosophy classes. I have no interest in philosophy. But I was interested in getting out of Bible college. So I signed up for that. And I found the second thing that I am not going to invest my life in. Philosophy. Because I couldn't understand a word that guy was saying. And I'm going, I know he's speaking English, but I don't have any idea what this man is saying. And we read all these different philosophers, Introduction to Philosophy, and I still have those books. You know, they're great paperweights. And, and, you know, and, the, and, I, and all I knew, all I could figure out is these are really smart people that I think are stupid. I mean, I just, I, they make no sense. And in fact, one very famous philosopher, I just came across this in my, in my studies, and I, and I thought... Man, I, 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 his philosophy is, is nuts, but he said this. This was true. They, philosophers, muddy the water to make it seem deep. That came from one of the most famous of all philosophers, the same guy that said, God is dead. Okay? And, but to his credit, he says, they muddy the water to make it seem deep. And all I knew is I'm sitting in this class and getting more and more confused. There is no way to wrap my head around this. But Jesus is simple. Christ, man, I tell you, even though you'll never fully comprehend him, he doesn't lead you into confusion. There's always clarity. There's always light. You know what he's saying. You know what he means. 
And that appeals to a simple person. So I stayed away from all the intellectual debate about Calvinism because it wasn't leading me to that pure and simple devotion to Jesus Christ. And I'm not making a judgment about whether it was right or wrong. I'm just telling you, in my experience, it was not leading me to a simple and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. It was taking me away from it, into intellectualism. Same thing with philosophy. It was confusing and not leading me to that simple and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. That's the acid test. That's what Paul's writing about here in this second chapter. He's warning them against against persuasive arguments that will delude them or deceive them and being taken captive by philosophy. So on either side of what he says I do want for you is a warning. And sandwiched in between is verses 6 and 7 where he's going to say this should be your master ambition. If your master ambition is to walk with Christ in the way that you receive Christ, then beware because there is an enemy who is wanting to take you captive through philosophy and is wanting to delude you through persuasive argument. And you think how much of this world it may look appealing because it looks intellectual, it looks like some kind of secret knowledge or experience that this person has that you need to have, and but it's taking you away from a simple and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. That's the acid test. What is this doing in my relationship with Christ? And if it's not leading you to Jesus, it is leading you away from Jesus. It's as simple as that. And Paul says, I don't want that to happen. Now, C.S. Lewis said, you can't avoid studying philosophy. If for no other reason, because bad philosophy needs to be refuted with good philosophy. Well, good for you, C.S. Lewis. I'm glad you, you know, he can handle that. He can study philosophy. If you have to study philosophy, I would recommend to you guys like Norman Geisler and Robbie Zacharias. I mean, those guys are clear. When, I, when our kids were in Bible college, my, my sons, two of my boys, there was a philosopher, chairman of the philosophy department, who, because the top theology professor was out of school because of health reason or something, he got pulled into teaching the first and second year students rudimentary theology. You got a philosopher teaching theology. Big mistake. Okay, why? Because philosophy questions everything. It is not, its, it's goal is, 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 I mean, skepticism was one of the first flavors of, of, of philosophy. They are skeptical about everything. In fact, Rene Descartes, who is called the father of modern philosophy in the 17th century, you know what he's famous for saying? I think, therefore I am. And I'm going, you've got to be kidding me. You know you exist because you think. Well, for him, that was the most profound statement that anybody could ever make because everything was being challenged. Everything was, you're skeptical about everything, even your own existence. Right. And so he came up with a way to prove that he exists. Because he thinks. So now I know I exist. And I'm just going, you've got to be kidding me. You see, the Bible's never going to lead you into that kind of nonsense. It just won't. In fact, you think about the history of Israel and the history of the early church, but especially Israel. God did not raise up philosophers to lead Israel. 
God raised up prophets. A prophet is just declaring the truth. And a philosopher is questioning every truth claim. And so it can lead you into all kinds of muddy waters and confusion. It's not a good place to go. But if you have to study it, study it with Geisler in one hand or Ravi Zachariah. Because those guys can cut through the mud and, and bring light like few guys that I know. But see, they're theologians first. And they're secondly, they're philosophers. They might say they've studied philosophy before they study theologians, but you read their writings, you know these guys are theologians first. And, and because they know the truth, they can cut through all this confusion of these modern philosophers. Now, you don't, may, may not study philosophy, but we're all influenced by it. And if you, one thing you do is you begin to study philosophy, you realize nobody is exempt from being influenced by it. You may not know what's influencing you, but every one of us is influenced by modern philosophy. Principally, I think two or three things. One, clearly, hedonism. That is a philosophy. And we have become, sadly, even as a church, a very hedonistic people. Narcissism goes right in hand with it. Where we truly think everything is about us. And that's a sad state to be in. That life is about me being happy. If life is about me being happy and me being fulfilled then anything and everything becomes justifiable because life has meaning only as I am fulfilled. Hedonism. Existentialism, another philosophy that came out of Germany, and that said that the only truth is truth that you personally experience is true. And so experience is what makes everything true. And so somebody can say to you, Jesus is the Son of God. And you go, well, that's good for you, but that's not my truth. You have your truth, I have my truth, Right? Everybody has their own truth. You know, the Bible says there's male and there's female. They say, well, that's good for you, and that's your truth, but that's not my truth. My truth is that gender is fluid, and you can choose whatever you want. It has nothing to do with biology. It has nothing to do with science. Okay? You know, what do you do with that? See, that's existentialism. This is what I've experienced. This is what I have known as true. You may never even heard the word existentialism or know how to spell it, but we're still being influenced by it. Nihilism. You know, it used to be when you, I'm going to get into the text here in a second, it used to be when you, get, when you studied philosophy, the very first course in philosophy was logic. Logic came under the discipline of philosophy. Today, if you, you can get a degree in philosophy and never have one course in logic. You know what? Because modern philosophy is at the stage of saying there is nothing that's meaningful, there is no truth, everything is absurd. So why even have a course in logic anymore? Because there's, there's nothing that really has meaning. So nihilism. And so why, why are we even doing anything? Why are we talking about truth? It doesn't matter. Just live the life that you want, because there's not going to be any meaning in anything that you do. So we are influenced by philosophy. Either known philosophy that we've studied, or we haven't studied it, but it's still in our world, and we live in the world, and you can't help but be influenced by it. And this is what Paul's speaking about. So jumping back into the text, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. You people in Colossae, the Laodiceans, and everybody who hasn't seen me. I am struggling on the behalf of people I've never seen, and I want you to know about it. Why? So that your hearts may be encouraged 
having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. So there's some connection here. So remember, in the previous chapter, chapter 1, he said, Paul says, we proclaim him. Then he says, we labor and strive according to his power, which mightily works within us. And now chapter 2, and we want you to know how great our struggle is on your behalf. We proclaim him, we labor and strive according to his power. These are three things we want you to know. We proclaim Jesus, we want you to know that. We labor and strive according to his power which works within us, and we want you to know about our labors and struggles on your behalf, so that you would be encouraged. Now, there's not a lot of encouragement in knowing that somebody is laboring and striving on my behalf. That's a blessing, that is an encouragement. But the bigger encouragement is having Christ proclaimed by men who are who are living their lives, not in their own strength, but according to Christ who lives in them. And that is really the blessing. And from that, my heart can be encouraged, but not just personally, but knit together with others in unity. And from this comes the wealth of a full assurance of understanding. So you're never going to get a full assurance of understanding. This talks about certainty. You will never come to certainty with philosophy. It's not going to happen. It's undermining certainty. It's bringing doubt, questioning, confusion. It is not about absolutes. But he says, I'm proclaiming Christ according to his power which mightily works within me, and I'm laboring on behalf of people I've never met so that you can have full assurance. We're not a people who are trifling in what-ifs. We are people who are like the prophets of old proclaiming what is. Every person comes into this world and should be asking before he dies three questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And what comes next? Those are three core questions of philosophy. So there's a sense where every single person ought to be a philosopher. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where is it all headed? But you go anywhere other than Scripture and Jesus Christ, and you're just going to be left with shaking sand, shifting sand. But you come to Christ, and you have a solid rock, full assurance to those three philosophical questions that every person should ask. Where did I come from? God made me, and God made me in His image for a purpose. Why am I here? I am here to know Him, exalt Him, and honor Him. And where am I headed? I'm headed into eternity. And it's either an eternity with him or it's an eternity separated from him. And I have absolute assurance about these things. Fully assured. That doesn't make me proud. That just means I know somebody who's the truth and this is what he has revealed. And I have every reason to have absolute confidence in what he has said. So I don't have to go through life confused. That's what Paul's concern is for these people. Not deluded, not taken captive, but that they be walking with Christ. Full assurance of understanding is possible. We will not know everything, but we can know Christ, who is the truth and who is the fullness of God. Full assurance, full assurance, walking in confidence in this dark world. When smart people are living like fools, full assurance 
is only through faith in Christ. Full assurance is for all Christians, not just some Christians. Every Christian can be fully assured of what is true. Full assurance is because of knowing Christ, and it actually results in knowing Christ. Philosophy will not give this. Persuasive argument will not give this. Christ is God's mystery, he himself. He is the mystery. See, in this, in, with philosophy and what was going on here in this Greek-Roman world, there's always going to be people, it's not just at this time 2,000 years ago, there's always people in church, out of church, that are going to say, I have got the secret. No, you don't. The, the secret, if there's a secret, is Jesus. The mystery, if there's a mystery, is Christ. See, Paul because there's this mystery out there, this secret. And Paul's saying, God's mystery, using their language, is Jesus. And there's no mystery there. It's nothing hidden. Christ is available for us each to, to take hold of and to walk with full assurance. So he says at the end of verse 2, that this full assurance resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Nowhere else. Nowhere else. Many times we're made to feel like we're simpletons, that we're fools, because if we say the only thing that matters is knowing Jesus. Well, there are people that are a lot smarter than you or I, who have come to that same conclusion. There are the C.S. Lewis's of this world and the Ravi Zacharias's and others. You just think, man, they must have six brains stuffed into that head. They're just, how in the world can they be so smart? And yet they say what we all know to be true. There is certainty. There is full assurance. There is wealth of knowledge and wealth of understanding in Jesus Christ himself. And that's not something just for Sunday mornings and coming to church. Whatever discipline God has called you into. I think about Daniel. You know, I, don't, I mean, just me, and maybe I'm weird. But I just think about Daniel, how he was taken captive as a young boy and put into that pagan palace and forced to study things he would have never studied as a Hebrew boy. Like astrology. And all the witchcraft and stuff that came with that. How to read. I imagine he was taught how to, how to, how to prophesy the future, to determine the future based upon basically witchcraft. Because what astrology is. He also studied astronomy. No, no problem with that. But he was a student of astrology. And yet he never got caught up in that garbage. He was forced to take the class. And I imagine he made an A in it. But he didn't lose his faith. And see, we're all concerned about our kids going off to college and losing their faith, and we should be concerned because they're constantly being attacked. Well, Daniel was living in that kind of situation, and he didn't lose his faith. And, it, and I believe it's because before he's ever taken into captivity, he came to that place of saying the only thing worth knowing is God. And I know my God, and my God knows me, and nothing is going to move me away from him. Nothing. And so even while he's having to study these pagan philosophies and, and, and demonic teachings of things like astrology, he makes his way through it and comes out on the other end absolutely sure 
of who his God is. It's amazing. And that can be true for anybody. In him, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And what I was going to say about Daniel is God made him smart, didn't he? In all the different areas that he was studying, God made that kid brilliant. And Daniel would say, I wasn't born brilliant. God did this. God is the one who enabled him in every field that he studied. And see, we think this was right from the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had a choice. They could eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, which was what? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, does God not want his people to know the difference between good and evil? No, he does. So they could eat from the tree, or they could come to God, who is the source of all knowledge and all truth, and who is the very embodiment of wisdom. So by going to the tree of the knowledge of good and and evil, they're going, you know, I need to find out for myself. You don't need to find out for yourself. See, if you can go to God, you can go to God's word, and if God's word says, this is not good for you. This is sin. I think over in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, he says, God made the body. God made food for the stomach. God made stomach for food. God made the body for himself. So therefore, God says, The body is not for sexual immorality. Do I believe that? If I'm eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, I go, I'm not so sure about that. I need to experience that for myself. But if I'm coming to God, who is the source of all truth and wisdom, I can go, I don't need to experience that. God says in his word, I have been made for him, not for sexual immorality. There's nothing to talk about here. There's nothing to think about. God has said it. You see? That's not going to make me stupid. That's going to actually open up my mind to understand even more things. Because there's no darkness that's coming in. And as I walk in the light with him who is light, my mind actually expands. That's what happened to Daniel. And so God is free to give him more and more. God is not against knowledge. But he wants to be the source of that knowledge. So whatever field we're studying, we go, God, it's you that I need to learn from. And I don't care what I'm studying, I want to know Jesus. Lead me to you, O God. If I'm studying anthropology or geology or whatever it is, I want to know God. And God will open up your mind because he is the source of all knowledge. He should be, wants to be. And, I, and, and the pursuit of knowledge should never take me away from Jesus Christ. Paul is not anti-education. What he's anti is anything that's leading us away from Christ. That's what he's against. Now, he says in verse 5, Even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Good discipline and stability are military terms. And what comes to mind there is you think about, you know, maybe some old movies you've seen where, you know, I I know like in the, you know, the Revolutionary War, different times when the armies used to just march at each other, shooting at each other as they went. 
I mean, can you imagine the discipline that took? You know, you're, just, you're walking into cannon fire and musket fire, and you just stand there just marching. Everybody takes a kneel, you know, and then stand up, march again. And guys all around you are getting killed. You just keep marching. Good discipline. And the stability of your faith. You're not running. I think I'd been the guy just going, why am I out here? And it, ah, run, right? Drop the musket and run. I fired my musket, now I'm running. You know, stand there and load it while bullets are flying all around you. See, good discipline and stability of your faith. That's what should come to mind. And Paul says, this is what you've got. And I don't want you to lose it. And see, a Christian can lose that good discipline and stability of faith by persuasive argumentation and philosophy. And Paul says, this is what I'm warning you against. There are some really good-sounding arguments out there. You know, logic is a good thing. All, but all a syllogism can do is tell you whether something is logical. But it can't tell you whether it's true or not. That is an entirely different thing. And so you can have two premises and a conclusion where the conclusion is the logical deduction from the premises. But that doesn't tell you whether the premises are true. And if the premises aren't true, then the conclusion's not true. And so how do I know what's true? Not through persuasive argumentation. Not through logic. Logic can show me if something is, is, is a fallacy or whether it's logical. But logic doesn't necessarily lead me to truth. I know truth by knowing Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And I know Christ by coming to his word. Beware of really impressive, intellectual, persuasive argumentation, especially if it doesn't bring me to that simple and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. So what is Paul wanting? Verse 6. This is the heart of it. I have two favorite passages, two favorite verses in the New Testament. Maybe three. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. In the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in Christ, who lives in me and gave himself for me. Okay? That is the heart of everything we believe as Christians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Well, now, how do I now live? I live by faith in him. Okay? That's one of my most favorite verses. And this one, I did my, my senior sermon in Bible college from verses 6 and 7. I don't remember anything I said, but I remember I used this passage. Okay? Sanctification, how does it work? I don't know, but I know what this says. Okay? There are so many different views of sanctification. This, it, this, this is all we need to know. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord. How did I receive him? How did you receive Christ? Just by faith. By faith. You said, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you for rising again from the dead. Thank you. And you received the gift of eternal life, salvation, eternal life, simply by faith. There was nothing you had to do. Just say, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for me. I'll take that any day. Thank you, God. So that's how you got saved. How do you live the Christian life? And see, this isn't complicated. 
You live the Christian life exactly the same way you got saved. There is not one way to get saved and another way to live the Christian life. Not one way to be saved and another way to be sanctified. And I tell you, I've got, I've, I've got books on how to be sanctified. What, all the different theories of sanctification. Okay? It's, and all, and I, I, you know, one group of people, I really, man, I tell you, and there's, what they're writing about justification, I think is the best stuff out there. Excellent, excellent stuff about justification. But when they flip over to sanctification, it's like, what just happened? Because these people are saying, you are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Hallelujah, amen. And then they turn around on the next page and they'll say, you are sanctified by works. Really? That's not what this says. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, if he's Lord, meaning he's God, is he able to save you? Yes. Does he need you to do anything to be saved? No. All I need to do is receive him, and he saves me. Well, can he sanctify me too? I mean, how do I get saved? Faith alone. How am I going to get glorified? What does the Bible say? We're going to step into his presence, and we will be like him. We will be just as he is, right? So sanctification, I'm sorry, salvation is totally the work of God. When we get glorified, we're not going to stand in heaven and go, okay, God, man, I know I'm not quite there yet, and what do I need to do to be just like Jesus? It's not going to happen. We're going to look around at each other and go, man, you're looking like Jesus, you're looking like Jesus, and they're going to say, and you're looking like Jesus, Charlie, and I'm going, wow, that's amazing. All I did was show up, and I didn't even do anything to do that. He made me show up, right? So sanctification, just like salvation and glorification, why would sanctification be any different? If salvation is the work of God and glorification is the work of God, why would sanctification be our work? It's not. As you have received Him, which is by faith, walk in Him. Simple as that. Now, does that mean I understand all that? No. But it's not confusing. It's clear. It is a faith walk. And again, walk speaks about a personal relationship. It speaks about intimacy. It talks about being in agreement. How can two walk to the other unless they be agreed? And so, but it's, this, this, it's, not, it's not just about intellectual. It's not about secrets that need to be revealed. Nobody should ever deceive us and delude us with saying, I've got the secret here. There's no secret. As you received him, walk in him. You received him by saying, Jesus, thank you. So how are you going to get to be like Jesus? How are you going to be conformed to Christ? How is he going to be be living his life out through us in the same way? Jesus, thank you. I'm not adequate for this. I can't do it. I couldn't save myself, and I can't deliver myself from sin now. Jesus is the Savior. Thank you for what you'll do. It is truly a life of faith when we just simply thank God for what God is able to do and we believe Him. You got saved by saying, God can do this. And and He lives His life through us by saying, God can do this. It's the same thing. Having been firmly rooted, now being built up Him, established in your faith. And we're almost out of time, and man, there's still so much more here. But I want you to just think about what Paul is going to work through in in these last 
um, statements here. The all the with hymns, in him, through him. I mean, it's just all the way through this passage. Verse 9, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions, the uncircumcision of flesh, he made you alive together with him, having canceled out the certificate of death, consisting of decrees against us and was hostile to us and he's taken out of the way having nailed to the cross and when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him so in him with him through him in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form you can't go anywhere and get more than what you've got with jesus in him you've been made complete in him you've been circumcised in him you've been buried with in baptism in him you've been made alive through him you've been forgiven. Through him Satan has been defeated. That's what that verse 15 is about. He disarmed <coughs> the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them. All this God has done. How can we go beyond Jesus? Once again, in him, with him, through him, we've been made complete. We have been circumcised, we have been buried, we've been made alive, we've been forgiven, and we have been freed from Satan's dominion. God has accomplished all this. God did this. What makes me think I can sanctify myself? All of these things that Paul lists, God did these things. Why would I ever go beyond him, add to him, stray from him, focus on something else, be taught about something else, why would I allow myself to be deluded or deceived by persuasive argument and the philosophies of this world? We cannot graduate beyond Christ. There is no higher knowledge. There is no deeper insight. There is no enhanced assurance. Everything else robs me from Jesus Christ. It is not a, an, an addition. Anything Jesus plus is not an addition. It is a subtraction. There's no other way to say it. The world will tell us you need something else. Even good-meaning Christians will tell us there's something more you need. It is not addition. It is subtraction. Do not be deceived. Do not try to add to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have everything we'll ever need in him. And we've been made complete in him. And the only way to walk, the only way to live this Christian life, is simply trusting in him who is the all in all. Amen? Amen? Okay, I'll close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, I thank you again for your word, for how God, you, um, how Christ is exalted in this passage as throughout your word <coughs> as the sovereign, supreme one, as God himself, in him who, that all the fullness of deity dwells. And I pray, God, that we would just not be deceived by this world into thinking there's something more that we need, some other teaching that we need, some other insight that we need to be enlightened by. God, I pray you'd keep us simple, pure and simple in our devotion to Jesus Christ and that we would never move away from him. We pray, God, for many of our, of our youth that are now in college we know, God, in the public schools, even private schools, their, their, their souls are being sought. 
And we know the same is true in the universities. But God, I thank you that, that we have the confidence that these youth, these children of ours are in Christ and Christ is in them. And I pray, God, that with all the attack that's coming against them, that they would especially remain pure and simple in their devotion to Jesus. And they would set aside, Lord, everything that would take them away from him. I pray that we would do the same. The assault on us is often less um, visible, but it's nonetheless real. And we are ourselves, God, every day um, under attack and being influenced, Lord, to, to believe things that would take us away from Christ, that would make us the focus, um, that make our welfare, our meaning, our happiness the goal of life rather than Jesus. And I pray that we'd be alert, God, to what the enemy is doing and that we'd be neither deluded by persuasive argument or held captive by the philosophies of this world. In Christ's name, amen.